Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Surface. Now more than ever, you need a laptop that can be as adaptable as you are. Introducing Microsoft Surface Laptop Go. Finally, a premium laptop at an affordable price. Starting at just $549, its light, thin design, vibrant touchscreen, powerful processor, and built-in HD camera and mic turns any room in your home into a classroom, office, or study hall. Available in three amazing colors the whole family will love. Visit surface.com slash laptop go for more details. 14 Mission 2, San Jose Avenue. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. I've had the pleasure of interviewing Adam Savage several times over the years, starting with the first season of the original Mythbusters. We've talked about costume building, stardom, his relationship with co-host Jamie Heineman, the velocity of a frozen chicken being shot out of a cannon, and the greatness of the planet Hoth Snowwalker scene from The Empire Strikes Back. But we've never really talked about San Francisco, Adam Savage's home of 30 years. Savage returns with the new Mythbusters Jr. on January 2nd on the Science Channel. The show's once again set in the Bay Area, filming in the old ILM building in San Rafael. Here's Savage, talking about the first time he visited the city as a young man in 1988. I remember we landed at night. We took the Embarcadero Freeway up there, uh, around there to get to the, to get to the hotel. The Marina Inn, that was the hotel. Marina Inn. And I remember the next morning walking out of the Marina Inn and looking around and thinking, this is the most beautiful city I have ever seen. I'd come from New York. I grew up in New York, uh, first few years in New York City, then in North Tarrytown, Sleepy Hollow, New York. Um, but I, on Goff and Lombard, I thought San Francisco was the most beautiful city I'd have ever seen. And I've countless times since then pointed out that if you think San Francisco is great from Goff and Lombard, you're in for a treat because that's not <laughs> the loveliest blog. We also talked about his early work in live theater in San Francisco. Adam Savage worked at Beach Blanket Babylon. We talk about the best San Francisco movie of all time and his appearance as a child actor in the Billy Joel video, You're Only Human. And we talk about Mythbusters Jr. and his decision to return to the Mythbusters franchise. It has something to do with the talented cast of children who were raised out of the maker movement that Savage has always embraced. We're your concierge for culture in the Bay Area. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Adam Savage, welcome to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Is this your first time here? It is my first time in this building. I mean, I have spent countless hours within, you know, a few hundred feet of here at the Metreon and the Westfield and at, uh, at uh, 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 you know, the diner. So it's like, I can't believe I've never actually been in this building. Yeah, you talk to me. We, I, I'm going to tell people we didn't just meet. Yeah. We've, I've met you a couple times before and we were walking around. We were checking out the archive. So cool. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I, there, there's a way in which just uh, looking at the, the, the digital, sorry, the, the film negatives, yeah. you know, the, 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 the history of what a place like this has gathered from this city. There's a way in which this is the, I mean, this is absolutely the memory palace for San Francisco. Every time I have a guest here, I think about like what photos am I going to show them? What file am I going to pull out to match with them? <laughs> so Han Solo, Alden Ehrenreich was here Oh. And he he had been in a couple of Coppola films. Okay. Yeah. So I, I brought the Coppola file out, and he's texting 
Francis Ford Coppola, which I was surprised Francis Ford Coppola had a phone that you could text yeah, with. Yeah, no, I, I had lunch with him recently, and he was texting people from it, yeah. Well, there you go. I should have brought you the Coppola <laughs> file, too. But you were a really fun one because I could, like, tailor photos to you, you know, because there's Star Wars. I didn't get Space Program out. I'm holding that out, hoping you come back someday. Oh, yeah. No, that's a, something I definitely want to come back and check out. Yeah. Especially given, you know, we're, we're just about to enter the year that is the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. I saw already an episode of Mythbusters Jr., which we're going to talk about, and you immediately are walking out in one of the Apollo, uh, tell in my, me. In my replica Apollo A7L spacesuit, yeah. Yeah, so we'll talk about that. I wanted to talk a little bit about San Francisco with you, though, mm-hmm. because I, I classify you as a San Franciscan. That is so funny. And I want to know, second of all, how you feel yourself, if, you f- if you're starting to feel a little bit more like a San Franciscan. You've been here for a long time. I've been here for almost 30 years. Do you remember the first time you came here? yeah. I do. I remember the moment uh, my brother lived over in the Mission District and got married in 1988. Mm-hmm. And my family and I flew out here and we stayed at the um, we stayed at a hotel uh, on Goff and Lombard. And I remember we landed at night. We took the Embarcadero Freeway up there, uh, around there to get to the to get to the hotel, the Marina Inn. That was the hotel. Marina Inn. And I remember the next morning walking out of the Marina Inn and looking around and thinking, this is the most beautiful city I have ever seen. I'd come from New York. I grew up in New York, uh, first few years in New York City, then in North Tarrytown, Sleepy Hollow, New York. Um, but I, on Goff and Lombard, I thought San Francisco was the most beautiful city I'd have ever seen. And I've countless times since then pointed out that if you think San Francisco's great from Goff and Lombard, you're in for a treat because that's not <laughs> the loveliest blog. What, what touristy things did you do while you were here the first time? Um, I was heavily into playing pool and billiards back then. So I went to three different pool halls with my cousin and my brother uh, over the course. And, of course, we played a lot of pool at the Albion. So it was I don't I don't even think we drove to Twin Peaks or anything like that. My family wasn't big on 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 uh, notches on the belt of tourist attractions. You went to a pool hall. This sounds like like a Scorsese movie. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, I went to a, a pool hall over on Geary. I went to another one down off of Market and um, I played pool with my brother at the Albion, the bar. Yeah. Um, the Albion was later on when I moved to San Francisco. Uh if you're pretty good at pool and you go into a bar you don't know and you start holding the table for a while, I learned that the locals will offer you a bar fight. <laughs> it might not feel like an offer, yeah. but I learned I learned at the Albion's pool table how to decline a bar fight. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's a very important thing to learn in San Francisco. It um, um, it's funny when you say you think of me as a San Francisco. I mean, when you're from New York, there's a way in which New York injects this 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 thing into you that you're only ever temporarily gone from New York. Yeah. Uh, and I remember the moment at which I realized my sons, who are now almost 20, that my sons were Californians, and I just never expected that would happen. But now I realize, no, this is my city. I know this city incredibly well. I've lived in ev- almost every corner of this city. Uh, I know all the secret roads, all the secret routes, and I can still learn new ones. It's one of the things I love about this place. 88, that's five years after Return of the Jedi, um, three <laughs> years before Terminator 2. I'm, I'm thinking an ILM time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you thinking at that time, like, I might, I don't even know if you were thinking about 
becoming involved with modeling or special effects. And were you thinking about working here? I was, actually. Uh, So I came back out the following summer of 89. Um, I left... To, uh, it, it was I missed all the important things by being where I was because I came out here in the late summer of 89 and then left just before the Loma Prieta earthquake. And while I was here, I missed the Tompkins Square Park riots, which were right around the corner from where I was living in New York wow. at the time. So I felt like I kept on being <laughs> in the wrong or maybe the right place at the yeah. right time. Um, but when I came out here in the in the fall of, of 89, a friend of mine worked at ILM at the time as a model maker, and he was working for a new division of ILM called Lucas Toys. And I got a tour of the model shop and Lucas Toys back then because it was an, uh, an industry I was really interested in getting to be part of. And uh, my sister's friend Kendall was gracious enough to show me around. Was that the old Kerner Optical? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you were out in San Rafael yeah. checking out. I just came from there just now, actually. Yeah. W- what did you see out there? I mean, what um, back then? I re- you know what? I remember seeing one of the sets from Darkman. One of the they were doing some motion control of the cityscape in Darkman. There's a point in Darkman where the villain. This is a early Sam Raimi film starring Liam Neeson and uh, uh, Francis McDormand, and. Uh, there's a point at which the villain, who was played by the guy who was the learning disabled guy from L.A. Law. Larry uh, Drake. There you go. Sorry. Larry Drake was the villain. And he's standing out looking over all of his construction projects. And uh, I saw the motion control shoot of these construction projects, the scrims they were filming through, the fake cranes and all of that. It was lovely to see. Yeah. I, it's not easy to get a job there, though. I mean, I, I, no, in I fact, don't think. When I finally got to ILM, which was 98, um, I discovered that everyone in the model shop had a different, unique, weird story about how they got hired. I mean, uh, 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 Trevor Tuttle actually apparently dressed up as a UPS man to deliver his resume right to the head of the model shop and make him sign for it so he could look him in the eye and know his resume got to the right place. But that kind of, I mean... Maybe that's the person you want to hire at ILM, or if you're George Lucas or whoever, you want someone who's going to take that extra step that's maybe a little bit crazy. Well, and so anybody who's doing the math, you know, I moved here in uh, August of 1990, but I didn't start working at ILM for another eight years. Uh, I had been wanting to work at ILM since I was 10, 10 years old when Star Wars came out. But I'm really glad I didn't get anywhere near it for the first few years. When I first come, came out here, I started working in theater. As you know, San Francisco in the early 90s was one of the great theater towns in the world. Um, I cut my teeth at the Eureka Theater, Rhino, Project Arto, all these little black box theaters, eventually Berkeley Repertory Theater, uh, Beach Blanket Babylon. And I built a body of work and a reputation that got me into Colossal Pictures. And then I cut my teeth at Colossal Pictures on a couple of hundred television commercials, which turned out to be the most amazing training for ILM so that when I finally did get up there, and, and it was a concerted effort of mine to get there. It was the, uh, the, 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 towards the end of the production for episode one, mm-hmm. I knew that the model shop was fat with people. Over 200 were working. And I called Mark Anderson, the then head of the model shop, I think every week for about four months until he hired me. I just politely called every Monday at a certain point. And then I distinctly remember in, uh, I think, uh, September of 98, Mark called me one morning at nine in the morning. And I was clearly had just woken up when I answered the phone. And he said, what are you doing to sleep? Come into work tomorrow. And 
I, I ended up staying there for five years. That's uh, uh, that's a good story. That's that's <laughs> your how you got to creative, how you got to ILM story. Rewinding a little bit to the yeah, theaters, yeah, yeah. because I've heard this before. Uh, w. Kamau Bell, mm-hmm. you know, rose out of a black box theater, um, you know, putting on his bell curve there and then opportunities opened up the sf sketch fest people which that's become such a great I, it's my favorite time of year all my favorite people come to town i mean it, yeah it's fantastic and that came out of the eureka theater and mm-hmm. in, in, in in a small sketch type of um uh they got fred willard in i think on the second or yeah. third year and then it blew up what about your acting experience? I mean, was that something you were pursuing super serious? Like, that's the direction you wanted to go? Or? It was when I was a teenager. Um, I wanted to be an actor, and I, my, my, my father had a good friend, uh, Charlie Kimbrough, who played Jim Dial on Murphy Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, I had grown up knowing Charlie. I'd seen him in the original production of uh, Sunday in the Park with George on Broadway. And Charlie got me my first agent at uh, ICM, and I had done a music video. I'd done a, a Billy Joel music video and a Charmin commercial. And I kept on making the rounds, auditioning for stuff for a few years in New York, but I gave it up around around 89. Uh, I just stopped auditioning. I The problem I had in New York, this is actually exactly germane to why I came to San Francisco. I wanted to be an actor, but I didn't really have an abiding ambition to be an actor. And there's a difference. I didn't have an abiding ambition to do anything specific. And New York City is a terrible, terrible place to be if you don't know your ambition. Yeah. If you do run there because it's full of people who know what their ambition is and they are battling each other for for it. And that means that what rises to the top in Manhattan is amazing. And cities, competitive cities like Manhattan and Los Angeles are places where the culture is really uh, has a sharp edge to it. And I think that's really important. But when I came out to San Francisco, and again, by the time I moved here, I'd already spent several weeks over a couple of years kind of getting to know the city. I learned, I realized later on that San Francisco is a perfect place to come and find your ambition, where the threshold to entry is lower than it is in a city like New York or Los Angeles. And that is a huge benefit, uh, both to the people who want to find their ambition and to the locals, where there's all sorts of every every strata of, of thing to experience. So I, I loved all these tiny little black box theaters. I worked in theater for three years before I saw, saw my first fly rail, mm-hmm. and I, I felt like I had graduated, you know? <laughs> uh, that What you say about Los Angeles and New York, I did four years in L.A., and I was a courtroom reporter, but I was a journalist, and... I didn't unpack my boxes right? because I knew when I got there, I, I wasn't cut out for it. I wasn't that competitive. I needed to be in a place where, you know, I wouldn't get eaten up because I'll get eaten up yeah. if, if I have to, you know, if every day is like trying to buy an, a used car and you're having to have an argument with people like that. So I, I know what you're saying and, and, and understand how you would like it here. And I, 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 you know, I, I'm sad. I've been a mission. A mi- I describe myself as a mission boy for most of my 30 years here. I've yeah. lived all over the mission currently living you know right in the right in the middle and i i started to feel a little old for my own neighborhood <laughs> and part of that is because of how much tech i mean i'm sure that everyone loves to talk about this but the thing that i'm sad about the 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 tech boom here is that i feel like san francisco has 
doesn't necessarily feel any longer culturally like a place where you can find your, I mean, maybe it is culturally, but it's still not a place that the people who are exploring their ambition can afford to live yeah. while they're exploring it. And that's sad. That's a loss. Yeah, no, it, it's, uh, and it's, I, I've been here off and on, you know, I was born on the, in the South Bay and that seems like a last 10 years thing. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe mm-hmm. last 15 years. Yeah, I mean, it's, I agree. it's, it's increased that way. Um, watch your tested builds and mm-hmm. I, I don't see you happier than when you just have a little bit of that um, whiteboard and an exacto knife and you're making your childhood home or yeah. something involving the shining or, <laughs> um, but then tv called and yeah. tell me about that i mean you're working there and in the first mythbusters i know you had you had been on um other well i like i said i had done some acting in my late teens and then given it up to make things for about 20 years i done assistant animation, graphic design. I came out here, like I said, I did theater and in theater because the San Francisco theater was so egalitarian and the threshold to entry was low. I learned rigging, scenic painting from Chevrolet Tate at the Opera House. I learned uh, art direction and production design. You know, so many incredible things with George Coates Performance Works and other other great theaters. Um Wait, what was your original question? I lost I, my I train didn't, of thought. I didn't even really have one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a great thing about podcasting. You don't need to ask questions, Adam. I started uh, waxing I was, on about well, all this. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, about how you oh, got oh, to Mythbusters right. and, if, and if that was something that you were looking for even. It, you know, it's funny. Um, one of my uh, coworkers at Industrial Light and Magic, the woman who was, sort of, who was the production manager of the model shop, Linda Wolkovich, and still a good friend of mine, Linda and I would go out to lunch occasionally at ILM when I was there. And I'm, she tells me years later, I ended up hiring her on Mythbusters and she was part of our crew for 12 or 13 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but at one point in the middle of that, we were having lunch and she said, you know, back at ILM, you said you wanted a TV show. And I said, no, I, I, I don't remember <laughs> saying that. And she said, yeah. She said it was uh, it was 2001, roughly there. And you were talking about the fact that you didn't think you were going to stay in the model shop for a lot longer and that was true I didn't think I was going to stay mm-hmm. I felt you know I felt like after after three or four years like I had explored a lot of what I had desired as a kid out of the experience of working with art directors and working with amazing people like Dennis Murin and I got to have a meeting with George at the ranch where I got to say oh I can't build that by Tuesday but I can build it by Wednesday I mean I'd fulfilled all of these childhood dreams and she said well what are you going to do after after the model shop and I said I don't know maybe I'll have a tv show <laughs> but so in, in 2002, I was working on the Matrix sequels for Mannix out at uh, the Alameda Naval Base in mm-hmm. the big Building 11 where uh, I sat in, a, in an office where behind me was a picture of the room behind me, an 80,000 square foot room filled with Mustangs ready for the war effort in like 43. Wow. And I was working on the Matrix and Jamie called me, uh, Jamie Heineman, my co-host on sure. Mythbusters, and he said, Look, I got this call from Discovery. And Jamie and I, I had worked for Jamie back in the 90s, but hadn't worked for him for years, but we'd remained professionally friendly. And when you're a freelancer, as you know, you keep in touch with everybody you've ever worked with. Uh, and he said, oh, I got this call from Discovery. They got this show they want to do uh, called Mythbusters. I remember thinking, that is a terrible name. <laughs> uh, and he said, uh, they, they, they want a demo reel. And I don't really think I could host a show on my own, but maybe we could do this together. And there's this quote from Edison Thomas Edison, where he says, a lot of people miss opportunity because it's usually dressed in overalls and looks like work. 
And this is a prime example of chance uh, favoring the prepared mind. Because when Jamie called me, earlier that year, uh, Apple had come out with the first PowerBook devoted to digital video. It's called the Pismo, mm-hmm. uh, uh, otherwise known as the Wall Street. I, I don't think those are two separate laptops. I think there was one inside the other. But uh, I had bought it. I had done a job for, uh, for the new ballpark opening for Old Navy, and it had paid me enough to buy my first new laptop. And it was a Pismo. And I invested more money in a, a, a little DV cam with FireWire out, and I'd spent the spring of 2002 teaching myself the rudiments of shooting and editing little films Mm -hmm. just because I wanted to know about how to do this. My dad had been a filmmaker, and I felt the drive to to connect with that. So when Jamie called me, I had in a bag basically a production facility, and I showed up with my laptop. I showed up with the camera. His assistant, Chris, had another camera, and over about two hours, we shot a bunch of footage that I spent another eight or 10 hours cutting into a 14 minute demo reel. And this is now May, April or May. They showed up on June 1st to shoot the pilots of Mythbusters for six weeks. And we never stopped filming Mythbusters until the, the November of 2015. <laughs> yeah. It literally was an onslaught of a never-ending train, a freight train for 13 solid years. But it, it changed. I, I I got to go out at the – it was the end of your first season on television, but I think it was the beginning of your second season. You were firing a frozen chicken into a windshield in front of Jamie's shop. And yep. then I, I went out. I remember when that. They, when, when, you, when the rowers pulled him and uh, – uh, up on the yes the Stanford rowing team Jamie got to water ski behind a rowboat I actually my kids weren't born yet at that time but I actually <laughs> bought the second season of Mythbusters just to find those two episodes because you can see a little bit of me in the background <laughs> showing my kids I impressed them with that um, but back then it was a very different show I yeah. mean um, it, it developed a lot and, and technology it seems like played a part in that it played a huge part on every aspect I mean the GoPro camera didn't exist when yeah. we started shooting so you had to use a little uh, you had to use a, a much more expensive Sony camera for these shots that it might get burnt or broken uh, we were a tiny crew back then when you first showed up we were maybe eight or nine people filming this show uh, in fact, when, when the crew showed up to shoot the pilots for Mythbusters, that entire crew was uh, a producer, a researcher, camera and sound, and a second camera person. It was a, like a five or six person crew plus Jamie and I. Yeah. And by the time we were done, we were in two separate buildings with a crew of over 20 and five hosts. And uh, yeah, oh, also social media. Social media didn't exist when we started. I, I remember there was an early episode where people were mailing in mm-hmm. videos to yep. you. you yep. know. Uh, YouTube was nascent at that point, Twitter. Uh, all of these became super fruitful fonts of myths for us to test yeah. later on. Was there a point where you realize, oh, this is going to get big? Um, it, ha- it was really slow and gradual, the, the, the growing of Mythbusters into a cultural phenomenon was very gradual. I mean, our ratings were good right off the bat, but the recognition factor was slow to happen. Uh, you know, Discovery back then, that was when ratings had already started to decline for the, for, the, for the big networks. Discovery was expanding around the United States, but still, like, you know, the, the number of Americans watching television every night was slowly starting to contract. Uh, and so 
it wasn't until probably the third season when we were asked to host Shark Week that I thought, oh, being asked to host Shark Week, <laughs> I have made it. Um, second question along those lines. I, I remember those early seasons were they were family friendly, but I wouldn't say they were kid friendly. You had a folklorist on, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was there a point in there where you realized Number one, that a lot of kids are watching this show, and number two, that this this is maybe causing an effect that, uh, frankly, has has shaped a lot of your career in and out of mm-hmm, MythBusters, mm-hmm. which is making and getting kids involved. And in, uh, well, that's the other thing that didn't that that came up commensurate with MythBusters on an almost parallel track was the maker movement. I think the first Maker Fair was two thousand seven, two thousand six. Um, and so we were really lucky to grow up right alongside that movement. Um, yeah, there was a certain point at which we realized a lot of kids and a lot of families were watching the show together. I mean, when we asked James Cameron to be on the show, when we first met James Cameron in a green room, he turned to us and he said, I want to thank you guys for your show. I don't let my kids watch television, but I don't think of your show as television. <laughs> and we kept hearing that over and over yeah. and over. We kept hearing that our show was the science class for homeschoolers. And it really, I mean, for a decade and a half, it really was. But we didn't try and change anything about the way we were making the show based on that. In fact, our joke is we never thought of the children. But it's true. To us, the reason that the show resonated and had an impact on kids is because we weren't talking down to anybody. We weren't, look, the the beginning idea for Mythbusters was simply a show in which two guys test urban legends and see if they're true. that does not carry with it any idea about being a science-based show that uses the scientific method in order to properly use controls and robust methodologies to come to conclusions. That all grew out specifically out of Jamie's and my uh, impetus and the ways our brains move. Um, and so again, you know, we tried not to adjust even after the show was really successful. We tried not to adjust anything we were doing for a specific audience. We just kept on trying to do the show we wanted to make. Well, that I mean, if you talk to people at Pixar, they're making those. Yep, they're making those themselves. movies for themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that said, um, you know, MythBusters ends. Uh, you didn't napalm any bridges on the way out. I, I remember we went to your cast party and I got to interview a lot of the crew which was really fun because a lot of them oh, had been around my and, family yeah yeah and and it seemed like that was a goodbye um did you feel that way at the time completely I felt like it was absolutely goodbye and it was a goodbye that I frankly I had seen I'd seen the writing on the wall for a few years before that last season uh, I saw our ratings starting to decline around 2012 uh and I had started to pitch discovery on this idea hey at a certain point, it's going to be time to make one more season. And when we do, I'd like to do something that doesn't happen in reality television. I'd like to make it a, a farewell season. And so, yeah, that cast party you went to at uh, Cafe de Nord, that that really was that that was the end of a eight month season, nine month season of of making an show episodes that said goodbye and being able to to say that goodbye. And it really felt like we'd hung up our spurs. We were done making the show. Yeah. So how did they get you back? Um, I, they surprised the hell out of me by bringing me back. Uh, I had been asked if I wanted to participate in the Mythbusters reboot with John and Brian. A lot of my original crew worked on that show. And I love 
I love that crew. I love those folks, uh, but I didn't want to be part of it. Uh, they asked me if I first they asked me if I wanted to be part of MythBusters: The Search. Again, I kept on saying no. And then last year, David Zaslov, the head of Discovery, called me up and said, "Listen, we've got this MythBusters spinoff that I really would like you to take a look at." And you know when someone asks you a question and you know your answer immediately. I knew I wanted to say no. I slotted the word no into my mouth and I waited for David to finish what he had to say so that I could say, I'm not interested. And he said, we got this spinoff idea. I think it's really great. I think you really liked it. I think you'd really like it. It's called Mythbusters Jr. And it stopped my clock. I, I had turned 50 that summer. My sons, like I said, who are almost 20, had left the house. Uh, and I, I was at that moment in my life feeling, oh, you know what? Soon it is time for me to pass on everything I know. Maybe I've got another 20 to 40 years on earth and, you know, 40 to 50 would be fabulous, but still it's incumbent on me to make sure I am passing on what I've learned. And he said, Mythbusters Jr. And frankly, I was kind of in right from the get go. Yeah. Uh, and I was as surprised as anybody. Mari Carr, sorry. We can talk. It's a podcast. Okay. No mistakes in the podcast. My editor, Mari Carr, is here. Hello. So nice to meet you. It's always fun to meet you. I'm here to take photos. So oh, okay. I think we got about 10 more minutes, if that's all mm -hmm. right. And sure. then uh, uh, if you want to hang out uh, and listen, that's good. Okay. But I work around deadlines. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Please. Okay. Okay. Um, so what was going to be different about this show and what was going to be the same because I, I've watched an episode it's it's not Mythbusters for kids it's Myth, no. Mythbusters with kids it is the new the new Mythbusters happen to be kids yeah. um, what's different I'm not sure you know when when you go into producing a new show obviously it's got the DNA of a show I know very well mm -hmm. uh, and not only just the DNA but almost the entire crew is the original Mythbusters crew. And like I said, this is my family. I, I love these people. But at the same time, this is a brand new show. And that means that we want the show to find out what it is. And so while we shot it using a lot of the standard ways in which I think through plots and narratives and how to tell stories and how to build methodologies, the fact is we left tons of, we, we put into the structure tons of room for the kids to, to 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 exercise their brains and their desires and their ideas about where we should go and it is as much their show as it is mine as it is discoveries uh, so when you ask that like you and I I've seen many of the episodes but I'm still not sure how it's the same and different from Mythbusters and I I don't feel a need to know. Yeah. I kind of want to see how the culture responds to it and the feedback that we get from the culture about that. Well these kids they're not precocious but no. they're geniuses. I mean you have in, in a in a very diverse group of kids in terms of their backgrounds mm -hmm. and in terms of their specialties too. Yep. Uh, and, and you know, th that was another thing that really helped solidify bringing me in is that Beyond Productions, the original production company for Mythbusters out of Sydney, Australia, had cast these six kids already. And when I saw their reels, I was immediately on board with it. Uh, and not only are they geniuses and not only are they great on camera and really helping them to be great on camera was a delight, but they're also really kind. 
You know, we mixed and matched the Mythbusters for each episode. And so I got to watch the social dynamics between every possible grouping of them. And there was none in which there was weird friction. Uh, they really did a great job at taking care of each other. And at the very beginning of all this, I'm very aware that Hollywood and the entertainment industry are not well known for how well they treat kids. Yeah. Uh, and the showrunner for Mythbusters Jr., John Tessier, said in one of our early meetings, I just want to make sure these kids have the best summer vacation ever. <laughs> and he's 100% right. That's how we were going to get uh, real reactions. Because if there's, if there's one thing I think of that's responsible for the success of Mythbusters, it is that we were telling honest narratives. We weren't writing down an episode and then just filming it, filming what we wrote. We wrote down a methodology and a set of experiments, and if they came out different than we expected, we would be following different lines of exploration. And the same was true for, for Junior. We really wanted the show to be an honest narrative about how to satisfy your curiosity about this or that question. And, and I, really, it was one of the most creatively satisfying things I've ever done to executive produce that show. You were a child actor. What was the Billy Joel? Uh, <laughs> You're uh, only video human. Again? Okay, it's, it's playing in the background now. You don't know it. Um, you know, Billy came in when he came to the ballpark. Yeah. I, 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 some of my road crew for my touring show is on Billy's road crew, uh -huh. and they got me backstage, and I got to meet and, hang, and my sons and I got to meet Billy and talk to him for a few minutes. And he said, "You were in that video." It was my. I said, "Yeah, it was my first acting job." And he goes, "Wow, what a terrible video." <laughs> So you have this background and you mm -hmm. meet these kids. What advice did you give them? I had a lot of advice for them. Um, you know, we are a we we live in a fame obsessed culture. I wanted to be famous when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, and now as an adult who did get famous, I'm really glad it didn't happen to me until I was in my 30s, until I'd had kids, until I'd been divorced, until life had already had a good portion of its way with me. And I was a more formed person. And getting a little bit famous is a real primer into why it can drive some people totally insane being surrounded by people who won't say no to you. And not that that's what happened to me and Jamie, but I saw pieces of that all over the place. And while I love American Idol and my kids and I watched it several seasons, I hate, I hated the construction that they repeatedly went to where Simon Cowell would say to someone, your whole life comes down to this moment. And one of the first things, the very first thing I told the kids when I got together with them and their parents was, we're colleagues now. I get to, this isn't a thing where I'm the boss and this is anything, but we are now working together on this. And one of the second things I said was, your whole life does not come down to this. This is one episode in what will be a life that goes in places you have no idea of. And this is just one of those moments. And it is no more or less important than any other. In fact, what will be more important to you over the course of your life will be your friends and your family and your loved ones and the people you choose to spend time with. This is just your job and you should put all your heart into it to do it as well as you can. But it doesn't matter as much as our fame obsessed culture would lead you to believe it does. Yeah. And I, I really tried to inculcate them with, with, with the perspective I have being on the other side. I was on a show that was, no one knew about it, then it was a big hit, then it declined in the ratings. I got to experience all the parts of the puppet show through the 14 sure. years we made the show. Did your role change too? Because I, I think of 
Mythbusters, and I, I, I was on the set a few years ago, and I remember Jamie was pretty cranky, <laughs> and you were flying around on a Sedgway, yeah, hitting, yeah. Ten, hitting ping pong balls back and forth. Yeah. You were both working, but your approach to it was different. Mm-hmm. Did your role change? Did you have to kind of be Adam and Jamie? Um, or did you, you just stick with Adam? Junior? Yeah, for Mythbusters Jr. Um, so my role did, it's, fun, it's an interesting question. Um, on, on Mythbusters itself, over the course of the show, my role changed radically. In the beginning, I was hired talent, and it took me a long time to kind of figure out what my job was. But by episode 70 or so, I really came into understanding what the ethos of this show was, the science that it was based upon, and how those stories wanted to come to fruition. And I... I felt a real responsibility for, and Jamie and I both did, for the ethos of this show to be rooted in mm-hmm. fact and rooted in in exploration. Um, for Junior, I wasn't the host. I was, I'm, 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 for Junior, I'm not the host. I'm the camp counselor. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you could call me a host, but I feel more like a camp counselor and rabble rouser for these kids. I, I spent a lot of time on set being exactly the way you saw me on the Mythbusters set, riding around on my one wheel, carrying foam swords, prodding the kids and pranking them. I wanted them to see that their, their senior executive producer was not only willing but, in, but encouraging them to behave like fools on set because that's where we get the best stuff. When they want to put on a costume or say something absurd, I want it on camera. And I worked a lot to show them exactly that absurd side of myself in order to, to make them comfortable with just being themselves. I, you know, I, there was a piece of me that thought this is going to be like, because it's Mythbusters Jr., it might be Mythbusters Light. And then the first episode, you've got a 12-year-old behind the wheel. Driving. <laughs> yep. And you, you seem so happy. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. Well, that's so this is the other thing is the kids didn't show up alone. They all showed up with their families. And they're I, like I said, I love these kids. Well, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast. I love every one of these kids. I love their families. I, I feel so close to them. And I feel so such a sense of paternal responsibility for them. And I'm also not that far having just sent my kids out into the world from where these parents were. And that gave that gave them that that put some trust in them for me. Yeah. Uh, and that really allowed us to work together to give this to make the atmosphere on set a really loving one. And I'm really I'm 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 really grateful for that. You asked it a question, but I can't remember what the actual question was. Uh, I don't either. <laughs> that's that that's a sign of a good podcast when neither the guest nor the host remembers what the question was, but you got a good conversation going anyway. Have have you ever been lured or have people told you you gotta get to LA, you gotta get to New York, or is or has it been have um, you been able to just stay here the whole time? I've been able to stay here the whole time. You know, the whole time we made Mythbusters, the commute was about 10 minutes by car or bicycle. And, I, you know, I know about the rivalry between L.A. and San Francisco that L.A. doesn't really know about. Um, but I have feel no – I love Los Angeles. I spend a lot of time down there. My wife and I love the city. We love Los Angeles. We love driving. We love long, long crepuscular evenings uh, and uh, and – we love architecture and LA is a great city for all three of those things. And we, we think occasionally about spending more time down there, but San Francisco is, it's, it it has all of these mixes of so much that I love about cities. Well, I have have one more question and then um, I have a lightning round. Okay. The lightning round will be quick. Um, uh, Jamie, did you get to talk to him before Mythbusters Jr.? And did you Uh, guys? Yeah, I called him up 
Jamie's not interested in coming back on television. Yeah. He is working in his shop in Potrero Hill in the old in the M5 building, uh, and he is really happy doing the R and D that he's doing. I mean, you know, I see him a couple times a year when we're when we're hired to do corporate gigs together, and I called him up right after I signed the deal for MythBusters Junior. Uh, before the press announcement went out. And I said, you know, respectfully, I wanted you to know I'm doing this. I didn't think you'd be interested in doing it. And he goes, nope. <laughs> and I said, but I thought you'd like to know, and I wanted you to hear it from me. And he said, well, uh, that's, that's really nice of you. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, I, can, I can hear his voice. You do it very well. I asked but... him, actually, I wanted him to come and teach the kids how to put out a fire. <laughs> Because I thought that would be awesome, and he wasn't interested in doing it, I'm sad to say. Well, hopefully there will be future seasons. We'll get that opportunity. I am giving you the San Francisco lightning round. Oh. This is actually my colleague, Heather Knight, who is our San Francisco reporter and covers City Hall, had all the mayoral candidates on her podcast and asked them these questions. Awesome. So these are very San Francisco okay. questions. Um, favorite SF movie? Set in SF. The Conversation. Oh, Yes. <laughs> great one great one any any elaboration i love the conversation because you get to see you get to really experience a union square that is unrecognizable today union square has been rebuilt how many times in the last 30 years at yeah. least three times four maybe and it was built up to something different from the days of the conversation, but watching uh, watching Frederick Forrest and is it uh, uh, Shirley from Laverne and Shirley? Cindy Williams. Cindy Williams yeah, walking, walking around Washington's walking around the square then, uh, Union Square back then. That that's the first movie that feels like old San Francisco, like I'm seeing it for real. I, the next one in which I felt like I'm really seeing old San Francisco was 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 Zodiac, which yeah. we were talking about off off the cast. Yeah, Zodiac and, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I think, is underrated for the locations. It's a great film. But you know, I haven't location... seen it since I've lived here. I mean, oh. I saw that movie in the 80s, but not since yeah. then. It's a fantastic San Francisco locations film. Favorite place to get a burrito? El Farolito. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I know, I know everyone has their thing, but I'm sorry, but the green tomatillo, the salsa verde, tomatillo salsa verde at El Farolito is the is the best salsa, and their burrito is the best burrito, and I'll go toe-to-toe against that Amsterdam <laughs> crab any day of the week. Um, this <laughs> I, is... I also happen to, I, I actually think the best red salsa is from Papalote on 24th in Valencia. Uh-huh. Okay, so you're getting a drink... Uh, you got friends in from out of town. Where are you going to go? I'm, I'm probably. I hope I'm not giving too much personal information. But no, no, it... no, 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 no. Uh, 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 that's a real. That's a really. That's an interesting question because I'm older now and we don't go out a lot. The, yeah. My bar back when I went out to bars a lot was the Lone Palm. Okay. That was that was the main one. Good call. A um, couple more. Of these aren't. And, and then the, there's the Latin American Club, which I also love. Uh, this is very good for Mythbusters Junior versus Mythbusters. Yeah. Old Skyline or New Skyline, San Francisco? I like the New Skyline. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I, I really enjoy it. It's feeling a little more like Vancouver these days. Yeah. Not quite. I mean, Vancouver feels like it was art directed by like three people about a year ago. It, it feels so consistent. Um, but I love the new additions to the skyline, even the leaning tower of whatever. Um, I think the <laughs> Salesforce building is beautiful, and I didn't know that they could project things on the top of it. I, it's really awesome. I agree with you. My little wrinkle is um, 
the and next time you're in the archive, I'm going to show the photos okay. to you. The old Transamerica Pyramid was supposed to be a thousand feet instead of 766 or whatever it is. And that would have worked as a perfect counterpoint to Salesforce yeah. Tower because it was still angular, mm-hmm. but more Blade Runner-y. I don't uh, know how to... I, no, I totally feel you on that. So, I, I, I see that. Um, yeah. So, Thank you so much for coming in to the Chronicle. I, I, I got to say, I watch with my kids, and I've watched Mythbusters, and you said it earlier, and I didn't want to interrupt you, but... Um, there were times where with my kids, I'm like, you can't watch TV, but you can watch How It's Made or Mythbusters. <laughs> and um, I just think the the idea of bringing kids on it is uh, a natural match. And I've watched an episode and it looks great. You know, I'll tell you, there's a show I pitched to Discovery for years and they never seemed interested in it. I said, you could get How It's Made cost them about $50 to make. Yeah. And I love that show. It's one of it's the greatest fantastic. shows ever. Yeah. So I said... Why don't you re- why don't you take all the archives of how it's made and put me and some comedian friends in the bottom of the frame in silhouette? We'll do a mystery <laughs> science theater three thousand where we talk about with engineers and comedians what's going on on camera. That's fantastic. Isn't that great? I That's think that fantastic. should be a show. Write to Discovery and tell That's them that the I should host that thing. show. That's the cheapest thing. I know. It would take you take a week to shoot a whole season. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. Well, thank you so much for coming to the Chronicle. Thank you so much for having me on. This yeah. was a delight. Uh, excellent. Thank you. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guest, Adam Savage. This episode was produced by me, Peter Hartlob. Senior producer is King Kaufman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album, Community. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.